The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by The Honest Company, featuring safe products for your family and home. Purchase your first bundle by Mother's Day and receive a free gift worth $20. Go to Honest.com and use the promo code CULTURE. That's Honest.com and the promo code CULTURE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Tates and Sass edition. It's Wednesday, April 15th, 2015. On today's show, While We're Young, is the new small canvas big think comedy from writer-director Noah Baumbach. It's about middle-aged childlessness, millennials and the line separating truth and falsehood, and many other things. We'll discuss it. And then Rap Genius is now simply called Genius. We play a game of nomer or misnomer with Slate's Katie Waldman. And then the 150th anniversary of the surrender at Appomattox is upon us. With Slate's own Jamel Bowie, we examine the strangely twinned legacies of the man who surrendered for the Confederacy, Robert E. Lee, and the man who accepted that surrender, Ulysses S. Grant. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And, uh, of course, uh, the Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Okay, before we dig in, Julia, and talk about the plus, I have to point out one thing that was pointed out to me during the week by an emailer, which is that... Every episode for whatever it is, six years or seven years, I've made a grammatical error in saying, joining me today is Julia Turner and Dana Stevens. Now, I think there are two ways to look at this. The first is that it's actually an act of volition on the part of an all-knowing literatus, the same way, let us go then, you and I, is a grammatical error at the beginning of Proof Rock. Or there's a kind of metaphysical cleavage between my introduction of you, Julia Turner. So joining me today is Julia Turner, the editor of Slate. And then we fall into the metaphysical cleavage and then we emerge out of it with a kind of afterthought. <laughs> because I was stuck in the metaphysical cleavage the whole time? Was it sweaty in there? No, you're on the far bank of the metaphysical cleavage and I have to emerge from it. And then as an afterthought, I say, oh, and then there's Dana. Hey, Dana. <laughs> I don't know that I take that as afterthought or retort, Dana, but I have always heard it as sort of two separate sentences. Joining me today is Julia Turner, and then in brackets unsaid here also is the beloved <laughs> Maybe he's just Dana implying Stevens. that I've just kind of been tagging along and invited the whole time, like sitting in the studio for some reason also. <laughs> but wait, I actually contest that let us go then, you and I, is ungrammatical. I mean, if you reverse the order of those two phrases, isn't it you and I go? They, they're subject? No, let us go is uh, whatever the reverse of an imperative is. You're asking for permission, us, let us go, you and me. Because you'd say, let me go. Let me go then. Yeah. Let me mm. go. Ah, okay. It's the let that makes it a, an object. I get it. I get it. Yeah, because us is not the, um, is the dative, right? And so therefore should, anyway. We're in the weeds, but I agree. I concede your point. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've dragged the whole fucking show into the metaphysical cleavage. <sighs> anyway, I think it's time to get out of it. All right, Julia, the plus. The plus segment today is... Ask a podcast producer. We are going to grill the lovely, the talented, the multifaceted Anne Hepperman about what exactly she does. We've sort of already done this by omission for Slate Plus members when we ran the unexpurgated version of our show. Anyone who besmirched their ears by listening to that godforsaken tract of audio 
could then deduct through subtraction and figure out what exactly Anne's job is every week and also that it's monumental. But uh, we'll get her to actually describe it in the positive so that it will be uh, more clear to our listeners. All right, moving on. While We're Young is the new movie from writer-director Noah Baumbach, known for his films Kicking and Screaming, Squid and the Whale, Francis Ha, a bunch of others. This one stars Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts as a childless Brooklyn couple occupying that very specifically ambivalent niche in the upper middle culturati. Some money, some social currency, limited success. They befriend a much younger couple played by Adam Driver and Amanda Seyfried. And these millennials, the magic children of Bohemia, revive the older couple's sense of life, but beneath their love of spontaneity are they secretly self-dealing moral vultures. Let's listen to a clip. We're the boring couple with a baby. What have you guys been doing? Tell us something fun. Oh, we met this interesting couple, Jamie and Darby. He's a young documentarian, and she makes ice cream. I don't know what to make of them, honestly. I like her. They make everything. It's infectious. For about 12 hours, I thought I could build my own desk. There's something about being around them that energizes you, you know? How old are they? 25, 26, 27. They're children. Yeah, nine years ago, they couldn't vote. But they're married. Why? You should see this guy's record collection. It's Jay-Z, it's Thin Lizzy, it's Mozart. His taste is democratic. So we should say, just by way of retroactively setting that up, that that's Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts describing their exciting new millennial friends to a, an older friend couple. The male member of the couple is played, by the way, by the Beastie Boys, Adam Horowitz, which I thought was a nice jokey touch to sort of make him the domesticated dad. Yeah, and the female half of the older friend couple, who they sort of leave behind in their pursuit of the millennials, is played by Maria Dizia, who is also Polly on Orange is the New Black, and it's essentially the exact same role. Like, you can imagine her going from the Orange is the New Black set to the set of this movie without changing costumes. Right, the same baby Bjorn. They just put a different baby in She's like the exact same, like a recent mother in a sort of gentrified Brooklyn set. Anyway, Steve, I'm interrupting. No, uh, Dana, I I will lay my cards on the table. I kind of love this movie, but I couldn't help thinking it explores the deep cultural divide afflicting American life, which is between Cobble Hill and Bushwick. (laughs) (laughs) Is the canvas on, Julie, I'm glad you like that. Is the canvas on this movie quite small and does it matter? What do you think of it? I'm curious. The cam- canvas is definitely small, small and familiar, right? I mean, it's a much trodden area of literary and cinematic satire lately, this tranche of Brooklyn society. I wouldn't hold that against this movie if I thought it did, it did something new or exciting with it. I mean, I guess I'll lay my cards on the table. Even among Noah Baumbach's films, I think this is a very lesser entry and I am not a huge Baumbach fan in the first place. So, this movie did not do it for me. I feel like it was the same joke, the same setup that we heard in that clip and that you see in the trailer sort of over and over and over again. And in spite of some really, really good actors, there's not a single actor who doesn't do a great job in their part and there's some nice snappy dialogue. I just didn't think the ideas in this film were big enough to be worth exploring. Julia, did you feel that way? Oh, I kind of liked this movie, actually. So here's my confession. I haven't seen any Noah Baumbach since Kicking and Screaming. Like I've seen his first movie and then I skipped them all. Because you didn't like it at all? No, I liked kicking and screaming. I don't know. I'm a busy lady. I think I had an instinctive sense that Squid and the Whale sounded sort of small canvas and depressing. Greenberg sounded potentially misogynistic. Francis Ha didn't get great reviews for its treatment of gender. I, like you, Dana, I'm not fond of the fact that uh, Noah Baumbach ditched his wife for a younger 
hotshot actress, Greta Gerwig. And that's completely unfair, I suppose, in reviewing somebody's work. But I just never managed to see any of the movies since the first one. Well, he's kind of asking for it with the subject matter. I mean, he really, he's very autobiographical. The Squid and the Whale, which is probably my favorite of his movies, is explicitly autobiographical. It's the story of his adolescence. And I think there, somehow his like whiny bitterness <laughs> was sort of in place. But I feel like he's, he's locked into that tone of whiny bitterness for movie after movie after movie. This movie didn't seem to have very many gender problems or to have that much whiny bitterness. I agree that maybe it wasn't that surprising, but I thought it made up for its lack of surprising ideas about the perils of aging with just kind of quickness and lightness of touch and deafness and some funny jokes. Everything was a little on the nose with the fedoras and the, the, you know, making fun of artisanal Brooklynites in their lofts. And there's a montage that showcases the Gen Xers like swiping their Netflixes and their phones and their screens and beep booping their way through their lives. And then the millennials in Bushwick, like using a typewriter and, you know, putting up their own canned goods and, you know, whatever else that was slightly on the nose. But the movie sort of has a sense of humor about that stuff. I don't know. I made me feel like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have been ignoring Noah Bumbach all these years. Uh, well, first of all, Dana, you're forgetting the primal axiom of all American movies, which is that if it features Charles Grodin, it's a good movie. <laughs> well, exactly, but Charles Grodin is so wasted. Okay, I agree with you, Charles Grodin. Oh, he's terrific in treasure. this film. He's and wonderful, he... but he doesn't get to tell enough jokes. He doesn't get enough screen time. His, ar- his arc on the recent Louis, where he played Louis' doctor, is much, much the better. Fun- the function of Charles Grodin in this movie is not actually to be a traditional Charles Grodin. He's not there to land these kind of oddly soft-pedaled zingers. He's there, to, for those who haven't seen the movie, to be this kind of Fred Weisman style eminence in the documentary film world and to kind of loom like someone who's both the, he's the also the father-in-law of the main character played by Ben Stiller, who's a documentarian who cannot complete his film 10 years in the making, completely over serious, overthought project. I had to sit through the entire film saying, I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. <laughs> of course, I am that guy. But um, but anyway, he's supposed to loom both as someone who, if Ben Stiller can work his way out of his own edible labyrinth, would help him finish the film, but is also so looms so large in spite of his surface affability. Uh, he doesn't himself see how he's crushing this younger man's ambitions. I thought that was a fascinating uh, relationship and beautifully uh, painted. But Dana, I take issue with another thing, which is that, in fact, I don't think the film tells one joke over and over and over again. In fact, it has an, the arc of a story. Now, you may or may not like it. I often wondered whether I liked it only because I now live surrounded by cows and chickens and, and suffer a kind of homesickness for Brooklyn. But it does tell the story of this in total enchantment on the part of the middle-aged Gen Xers for this younger millennial couple and their kind of zen, hands-on life in Bushwick and how that sours and how over time he sees that there is a profoundly heartless, self-serving ambition underneath it. And I wondered whether that part of the story would resonate. The cliche part is, oh, in Cobble Hill or wherever they live in, the older couple lives in Brooklyn, people are insulated, bougie, self-involved, and so kid-centric as to have abrogated their own humanity. And people in Bushwick fix their own motorcycles, have their own backyard chickens, and have a direct relationship to the means of small-scale craft production. That's the premise of the film, and I thought it was sort of funny to exploit it in a slightly hurried and cliched way in order to get to the meat of the film, which is that something about 
telling the truth in that generation has been lost. That beneath the craft quality twee are people who are just as self-serving but have lost any perspective on basically fundamentally on what telling the truth is. And the movie is going to land or not land based on that second part of it, not really so much on the on the setup. Julia, am I, have I found the wrong tree and barking up it uh, endlessly? But No, I think that's exactly right, Steve. And I think one of the things that makes the film really interesting is that it doesn't necessarily come down where you would expect, and it doesn't necessarily endorse the view you would expect with regard to this debate about authenticity. The film itself is skewering the mores of the the middle-aged without necessarily endorsing them in a way that makes it feel much less like navel-gazy and self-indulgent than I expected a Noah Baumbach movie to be. Right. And also, if this movie were a symphony of self, like a totally self-blind symphony of, of, of self-pity, right, the world's smallest violin... I don't think the scene between Ben Stiller and the hedge fund manager would have been played the way it was played. You're meant both to see the satire of the hedge fund manager whose attention span is tiny and can only put things in the most slickest and trivial terms, and Stiller, who's totally incapable of the art of the pitch or acting in anything like a a self-interested way, right? I mean, I think Ben Stiller, if Ben Stiller weren't also the object of satire in this movie it would be insufferable. Well, and to me, that's, that makes it a little bit insufferable. I mean, that Baumbach style of like, let's satirize everybody and everybody is just a hypocrite out for their own and let's just, I don't know. I mean, there's there's something within this apparently sweet and twee little world that to me feels very sour, flat, and closed down. And I think I'm extending that a little bit from other Baumbach pictures as well. Just his worldview is one that always makes me feel very locked in and claustrophobic. And even though this movie's only 90 minutes long, it felt like an eternity to me. Because there was no one you were rooting for? Because it was thesis-driven or something. I just sort of felt like these set of ideas were set out at the beginning about generational conflicts and truth and relationships and that and that he was moving his cogs around and he was wasting the talent of wonderful actors like Naomi Watts and Charles Grodin. I mean, Naomi Watts, the only out loud laugh, I think, for me during this movie was when Naomi Watts goes to that hip-hop exercise class with Amanda <laughs> Seyfried. And of course, her hip-hop dancing is terrible and crazy, and she's just like frantically flopping around like a chicken. And it's great physical comedy, which you don't often get to see Naomi Watts and Amanda Seyfried do together. And I kind of felt like, why isn't Baumbach enjoying that, leaving his camera on it, letting us see their whole bodies as they dance, like turning that into something fun there's he was so quick to get to cut to the next thing he wanted to satirize that there was no time to like experience anything i would agree with you if the basis of the satire wasn't the couple's childlessness which i think is the center of the movie and what it's really a meditation about and how this has led them to the delusion that they'll stay the same age as these bushwickians forever they're confronted by the fact that they neither have made this move forward in life by having children, nor have they really retained all the supposed virtues of this younger couple. And they make this kind of manic grab to pretend that they can be peers, you know, with this with this younger couple. And, th- and th- it's the failure of that that seems to me sets up the heart of the film. And I won't give anything away, but also the ending of the film, which isn't, in fact, sour and belittling at all. Well, I would argue that if you were a person who did not have kids and did not want to have kids, you would find this film very belittling because it both skewers the culture of having children, but doesn't really give you a satisfactory way out. Yeah, without giving anything away about the ending, I mean, the, the last shot is not a, a happy vision of the, the future. 
the, not just the future of these characters, but of the future, <laughs> in my opinion. There's this sort of hectoring speech that Ben Stiller gives to the Adam Driver character near the end, kind of give, laying down the law about, about authenticity and truth and being a great documentarian. And uh, and I feel like he is serving as a mouthpiece and a proxy for Baumbach at that moment. And the last shot, which again, I won't summarize, but which again, I think sends the viewer away with a very negative image, is also a kind of a, a Baumbach mouthpiece. Oh, I didn't take that last shot as negative, exactly. I sort of took that last shot as the cyclical eternity of the shifts between generations and a sense that there will always be something new under the sun and a new set of attitudes and mores that that people will have to adjust to maybe and get so. used to. Maybe there's there's more hope there than than I'm seeing. Basically, I expected total toxicity and gender toxicity, and I felt that Naomi Watts and Amanda Seyfried were both great characters who were treated fairly and that the movie skewered its navel-gazy male nebbishes more than it sympathized with them, and so I was pleasantly surprised. And I laughed a few times, and I thought parts of it were beautiful to look at. Uh, Julia, thumbs up or thumbs down? Break the tie. Thumb medium? I don't know. I liked it. I wouldn't... I don't I don't think anyone needs to run out and see it, but if you do, you might like it. Yeah, it might be to your taste. Seth Stevenson, who, to my surprise, is a huge no bone backhead. I didn't know that. I reviewed it very favorably for Slate and loved it. So And so did A.O. Scott in the time. So maybe people will love it. One more thing I have to say about it. Waste of Adam Driver. It's the second time that Noah Baumbach has wasted Adam Driver as a generic hipster character. <laughs> the only person who's really cast Adam Driver well is Lena Dunham in Girls. Okay, that's the end of my speech on Baumbach. <laughs> Okay, disagree. Driver's great. Watts is great. Uh, Stiller's very good, and Groden is transcendent, as always. Uh, go see it or don't I didn't say they weren't great. Care. I said that he didn't do enough with them. Okay, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now you guys have to go see this movie to settle the war between Dana and Steve Yeah, Julia one. refused to break the tie, so come to Facebook and tell us what you thought of the movie. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. I was right. Dana was wrong. Moving on. <laughs> that's an unfair use of the host prerogative. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Julia, what do you have? The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored this week by Honest Company. Honest.com helps us take care of our kids and our homes with responsible and safe household products you can trust. Take, for instance, Honest Diapers. They're ultra soft and super absorbent with cute prints. And they're made of plant-based and sustainable materials. Purchase your first bundle before Mother's Day, and Honest will send you a free aromatic soy candle worth $20. Just go to Honest.com and use the promo code CULTURE at checkout, and you'll get one of Honest's most popular items free. That's Honest.com, and use the promo code CULTURE. The website Genius was formerly known as Rap Genius. It's an annotation site that launched in 2009. As Katie Waldman writes in Slate, as Genius gains legitimacy, shedding its reputation as a playground for the antics of its broish founders, it is also widening its scope, no longer limited to rap or even music. It comprises more than a million texts from the wasteland to the speeches of Abraham Lincoln to the back of a Tylenol bottle. She goes on to say, Genius's founders, once accused of exploiting black culture for commercial gain, slumming, or whitewashing, are now hosting digital salons with luminaries like Juno Diaz, Michael Chabon, and 50 Cent. Katie Waldman, welcome to the program. Thanks. Hey, Steve. Hey. Um, your piece, by the way, is tremendously good. It reminded me of T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, when if you go back and read <laughs> it, it just seems like one pull quote, like one eternally relevant pull quote after another. It's beautifully written. It's fantastic and on point. And thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. It's so great to be here. Hello, everyone. Hi, Katie. Hey, Katie. Talk to us about this unexpected arc that this website has taken. What did it begin as and what has it become and how did it get there? 
Well, what's so funny about Genius is it was actually the brainchild of these three Yale graduates. They're white. They don't seem like the typical ambassadors uh, to or from hip hop culture. And yet they were talking about a Cameron song in a Brooklyn apartment. They had moved after graduation. They had they had moved there and decided wow, uh, we would like to know more about the deeper meaning uh, behind this line. And so they started this website that was dedicated to decoding rap lyrics. And I guess that as it grew in popularity, they started to think, well, maybe we could open up other texts to the same kind of critical attention. And so the site just ballooned and um, more people started contributing their annotations. And now they have this kind of megalomaniacal dream which is we are going to annotate the world. So practically any piece of text that you can find on the internet should theoretically be open to genius annotations. And one thing we should note here is that this is not a uh, purely idealistic, romantic notion unsupported by the uh, venture cap vultures of Silicon Valley. The site has taken in a bunch of money, right? There's, There's a lot of people who have staked some fortunes on the idea that a mania for close reading, not widely known as a massively popular pursuit, cultural or otherwise, uh, will somehow take over the web and and beget a very strong business. Isn't, isn't that right? Yeah, that's true. I think they have about $50 million in venture capital at this point, which is kind of crazy. Like, it is a huge gamble. And I think you're right also to sort of point out that the intentions of the company and definitely the reputation of the founders is not totally pure. And They definitely, like, I think they deserve some of the criticism, especially in the early days of, like, kind of dabbling and not paying attention to what people who are more qualified to talk about hip-hop music or rap lyrics might say. But now it's great because they have invited artists to annotate their own lyrics. So, like, Chief Keef and um, Nas and a bunch of artists are actually telling people what their intentions were, which is another really interesting wrinkle. Yeah, there are a ton of different uses which we should get into. But I do think part of what that investment suggests is an excitement about the technology and the notion of an annotation platform that could travel around the web and help people understand things better. But that does lead to, I think, some of the great observations in your piece, which suggests that Well, you do a good job investigating what exactly can be discovered through crowdsourced annotation. So what was it like? Was it like English class? What was it like? It was so interesting. It was kind of like English class. And I should preface this by saying I am now a genius addict. Like, it is on my circuit. So, like, I will check Twitter. I will check my email. I will check Genius. And they have this really dastardly brilliant system of IQ points where if someone upvotes your suggestion or your annotation, then you get extra IQ points. When I started, I had one point. I was so proud of it. Now I have 49 points. Whoa. Genius big shot. I know. No, right? Um, I mean, this is still laughably low. And I also think it's it's a lot of pity upvotes from people who read my article. <laughs> I was so pleased with that one point. But you also say, Katie, you make the point that essentially, I mean, to simplify it, the more kind of literary your your Kate, as they're called, is, your annotation, the less likely that it is to get upvoted or even noticed. So you say that there's kind of a blandification that happens with, you know, this this mass exegesis. 
Yeah, and that's actually one difference from college seminar that I noticed with Genius is sort of in college, I always felt like we were being pushed to investigate kind of the edges of what was possible in terms of the author's intention or like what a word choice meant. And here it's kind of what is the most plausible explanation for this phrase or like why the author used this word? And then, you know, a consensus gets behind it and it becomes sort of the anointed explanation and everything else is kind of an also ran. Um, so it was almost uh, dismayingly uh, authoritarian some of the the attitude towards interpretation at, on some pages. Other pages, like Kendrick Lamar, who's so rich, there was just like a bunch of different competing glosses, and that was more fun. But I do think that that is one weakness in the kind of upvoting program is that it encourages you to pick a reading and then um, kind of discount all the other readings. Well, it's also, isn't it, Katie, the difference between annotating and interpreting? I mean, isn't the, it's the difference between the Norton Anthology footnotes and a good English class? Yeah, well, that's another thing. Genius is really good at giving you facts in the way that the internet is like a machine that spits facts at you nonstop. And it doesn't necessarily give you the whys behind those facts. And if you try to annotate in ways that pose questions that are sort of less can someone unpack this illusion for me or explain what this term means? If you start to go into what is the rhetorical effect or like the literary intention of this turn of phrase, people are going to mostly ignore you and they might even downvote you. So at the same time, though, the site itself, you were saying, provides a glossary of literary terms and is trying to sort of up the level of discourse by inviting on both the original artists and, you know, interpreters of them. Yeah, and I honestly think that the founders or the owners now have a very noble intent. Like they've said that their goal is to unpack the richness and meaning in every line of text. And some of it is sort of like, well, good luck. Here's the Chipotle menu. (laughs) (laughs) Have fun. Um, Although now that Hillary has stopped there, there's just so much to decode in her choice of a burrito bowl. (laughs) I mean, I did find that. So after reading your piece, I signed on to Genius and started to try and annotate some things. And I was really struck by the experience because you can't, it's hard to figure out what form you would offer to highlight like an interpretation of a broader text. Like it's very easy to pick a specific phrase or reference and make a note about it, but it's harder to offer an interpretation. I think as you say, Steve, Katie, you have a great line in your piece, as useful and elucidating as the site's patchwork of facts, illusions, and definitions can be, all that trivia can make your final understanding of a song feel high but not deep, intricate but not meaningful. It was as if each comment were another encrustation over an elusive center. And I really had that feeling. I went on and checked out my favorite song, the Liz Fair song, Stratford on Guy, which is about flying in a plane. And it has a reference in it to Galaxy 500, which is a band, and someone had annotated it with the Wikipedia page for Galaxy 500. And I added a couple other annotations. I added uselessly the information about who Bridget Bardo was, because there's a line about how a flight attendant looks like Bridget Bardo in the flight. And the movie's all about the cinematicness of flying, and so uh, Bridget Bardo, it's a reference, you know, but like figuring out how within the form of a specific comment to make that point which also is pretty obvious if you're listening to the song. It's not a super value add, I don't think, was a little confusing. It was it was hard to figure out where you would engage in a broader conversation about what that song means or why it's great or what the particular beauties of it are. It did feel more like a decoder ring than a interpretive conversation. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I think like the problem with genius is a problem of scope, but it's two paradoxical scopes at the same time. Like on on the one hand, it's too small. Like the microscope is too small. You're just focusing on a word or a phrase, and you can't really make a broader argument, as you said, about the entire text and its aims. But at the same time, the scope is too big. Like you're constantly widening the frame to usher in more facts. Like oh, here's another reference that you could track down, and here's like another piece of context, and you can always layer on these additional pieces of trivia and it's like genius hasn't quite figured out how to get the right viewfinder that allows you to focus on a sizable chunk of text and sort of drill into that Stephen Dana I'm curious for your thoughts on this larger trend I mean you guys are the grad students at this conversation what does it mean that this is like one of the hottest startups of the moment this is good bad I don't know. I have trouble hearing that as a bad thing. I mean, if a venture capitalist wants to pour their money into people explaining songs and poems to each other, that seems like a more worthwhile human endeavor than plenty of apps being developed here and there. I don't really have an opinion about it, frankly. I mean, my memory of what makes a bad English class bad is the search for a hidden code in something or some prior analog to which the poem or novel can be reduced Uh, as if there's an answer and people are kind of searching for it and it's behind, hidden behind the back of the professor who's going to hold it there until the last 10 minutes of class. That's just, to me, is the definition of, 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 of pissing away 50 minutes in a seminar room. And the very best English classes were discursive and conversational and you arrived somewhere somewhat unexpected but seemed absolutely right when you got there. So I, I have a hard time, if, I, if I'm forced to place this in a context I'm familiar with that doesn't come out favorably, but if it's if it means something useful to people in a way that Wikipedia is endlessly useful and I find by and large trustworthy to me, then I think it's probably a noble venture. So now that you check it every day, and I'm curious why you check it, Katie, is there some like notification like you've gotten three upvotes and two downvotes or you've got a new IQ point or like what's the thing they used to lure you in? But uh, so I'm curious for your answer to that. But then also once you get there, like who are you talking to? What 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 do these other people seem like? Yeah, well, I actually haven't re-entered the fray in terms of posting my own annotations, but I really like you get notified when someone comments on um, on a line of text that you've also commented on. So I was definitely playing around with uh, a lot of the Kendrick Lamar new uh, lyrics, and he's so elusive and rich and great. So um, I'm getting a lot of updates when people add things to King Kunta, for example. Um, and I just like seeing how the conversation is progressing. And it's uh, so I, I check that. I check to see like who has added things to that conversation. And then I also check to see if anyone has upvoted or downvoted me. Um, and as I said, I think I've gotten a lot of pity attention from people who read the article and said, oh, that's so cute. She has one point. <laughs> Let's help uh, her out. I love it. Okay, the piece. Okay, the piece is what's the yams? How the annotation site Genius awakened the hyper intellectual close reader slumbering within all of us, seated right next to the leptodopterist, uh, no doubt. Katie Waldman, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. All right, moving on. Last week marked the 150th anniversary of Robert E. Lee surrendering to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox, 
Grant went on to become president of the United States. Lee went on to become president of Washington and Lee University. But more importantly, he became a symbol of the so-called lost cause South. As Jamel Bowie writes in his truly wonderful essay on Slate, to millions of Americans 150 years after the end of the Civil War, Lee is a role model. And Grant is, despite his gifted generalship and consequential presidency, an embarrassment. What happened? Jamel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is a great essay for a lot of different reasons, and I hope to get to most of them uh, over the course of the conversation, not least of which is through the lens of this kind of odd legacy of these two separate men, one can see the history of race uh, beginning with Reconstruction up through uh, Eisenhower's first efforts at uh, civil rights and beyond. Um, but let's begin with the question that you ask. Well, how did how did this happen? How did Lee, who was on the losing side of, of this conflict, become a kind of saint, at least to a portion of America, and grant a symbol of corruption, drunkenness, uh, in some ways failure? A lot of it has to do with the really aggressive public relations efforts of former Confederates right after the war. The thing that I'm not sure people realize is that the war ends um, in really the summer of 1865, and oh, some time passes as people return home and kind of take stock of, of their lives. But by 1866, you have former Confederate generals, former Confederate soldiers really making this very heavy PR push in newspapers, in periodicals, essentially laying down their narrative of the war. And it contains elements that we would sort of understand, we would see later on, um, that this was not a war over slavery. It was a war over freedom. It was uh, that the soldiers were honorable, that the South never lost, so on and so forth. And so this begins pretty much immediately. But in this early period, there's a, there's a counter narrative, and I would, I would say it's really the mainstream narrative, which is uh, what historians call the emancipationist narrative, that in fact the war was over slavery, that the Confederacy was uh, not just misguided, but actively wrong and, and among the most um, fervent Union partisans, uh, actively evil, um, and that this was a war for freedom, for liberty, for free labor. And that is sort of the dominant narrative um, going into the 1860s or the rest of the 1860s into the 1870s. And what changes in the 1870s really is Reconstruction and sort of Reconstruction's place in American life. It's very contentious, sort of over overarching, all-consuming issue. President Grant at this point is the the person sort of leading America in its for most of its Reconstruction years. And he becomes tied very much to the failures of Reconstruction. He becomes tied to sort of all the problems that crop up in this period. And so fast forward, you know, 10 or 15 years when the national public is, is exhausted with the issues of sectionalism, with sort of the... Um, the relate the kind of strained relationship between the North and the South, and people just want to uh, get along again. You have this old, you have this post-war Confederate narrative that gives people space to do that. That's not so much so, so much focused on the question of black rights and the question of emancipation. It's focused very much on the valor of soldiers and sort of the g glorious causes and, and sort of all of that. The public kind of latches onto that and in the process um, adopts a view of Grant and Reconstruction that this was a failure, that this was something we shouldn't have tried and that Grant um, was a bad guy, or if not a bad guy, then a misguided guy for um, going down that path. I'm curious, uh, you know, in your piece, you focus on these twin 
personalities on Grant and Lee, and obviously they met at Appomattox. Obviously, Grant went on to be president, write a memoir, and and you know, in some ways, oversee parts of Reconstruction. But why why did Lee become the figurehead for the flip side? You know, part of it has to do just with I mean, with Lee's performance in the war. You know, Lee was a a very strong um, leader of men. Um, he was a very good general. Um, he did have the esteem of his officers. And after the war, um, while he kind of retreated from public life a bit, he did make statements to the effect of, um, you know, that we fought we fought hard, we fought with valor and with honor, and his generals, um, his subordinates, who idolized him, kind of took this message out. And so when sort of when people were beginning to uh, look for a way to memorialize uh, Confederate fighting in the Confederacy, Lee was a natural symbol. Jefferson Davis's very long uh, two-volume memoir, which which doubles as sort of an explanation of his explanation of the Southern cause, he touts Lee as this indispensable figure. The, the, the cult of Lee, which sort of was seeded throughout the war, um, really uh, grew into its, you know, its full form in the, in the first few years after the war. And that kind of just continued on. Jamel, I wanted to ask you about the 20th century and how that kind of school of historiography, the lost cause school, was carried forward into the way the Civil War was taught. And I ask that specifically because I grew up in Texas in going to public schools in the late 70s, early 80s. And I remember specifically that our history textbooks would ask the question, what was the cause of the Civil War? And slavery was the wrong answer. I mean, I'm sure that it was phrased in such a way that it was not the only answer and it was broader than that or whatever. But, you know, we were definitely reading from lost cause textbooks now that I look back on it. It's funny because so was I, and this was it being an elementary school in the 1990s. I mean, the, in what part of the country? Uh, in Southern Virginia. Mm-hmm. And I, I've talked to you know I I, I once uh, briefly dated a woman who we were somehow talking about this, and she mentioned that she grew up in Pennsylvania, that in her textbooks said roughly the same thing. So I think you know I think that's a testament to how much of this narrative really did penetrate kind of the broad American consciousness. But the origins are in the 1880s and 1890s during this period when the Northern public um, was trying to find a way to get past all the heartache of the war. And you had at Columbia University a historian, um, a Southern historian named William Dunning, whose sort of big idea was that, in fact, the South was right. That, um, And this was all very heavily steeped in sort of ideas of black black inferiority um, and white supremacy. But his idea was that Reconstruction was uh, one of the most tragic mistakes the country ever ever made, that trying to let black Americans govern themselves, govern states, ha- p- participate politically was a tremendous mistake that har- that harmed the South, that trampled over the rights of white Southerners, and that Ulysses S. Grant in facilitating this and in protecting this becomes a tyrant, becomes someone who is trampling over the rights of white Southerners and ignoring their, their just say in the um, administration of government. And Dunning has many students and they all I mean they're 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 skilled historians and they all sort of make their way to the top of the academic discipline and and from there this is what they're writing and again all of this is happening at exactly the same point when the public wants 
It's craving for some other way to understand the war. Yeah, I mean, I think my education, you know, growing up in Boston also had some of that lost cause history in it, or at least offered a number of different ways of looking at the Civil War. And there was also some of that in my own family. My grandfather, who was born in the early 20th century in Britain, is actually was named Robert E. Lee Turner because his mother was a homesick Virginian woman and he was later orphaned and came back to the United States and got married and had my dad. And he and his wife named my dad Robert E. Lee Turner Jr. So I grew up in Boston feeling very much like a liberal Yankee with my liberal Yankee journalist parents. And as I learned about the war, it was very confused that my dad was named after like one of the bad guys who was fighting for the wrong side. And, you know, insofar as I ever understood it, there was a sense of like, well, yeah, the Confederacy was terrible, but Robert E. Lee was this noble, honorable man and a great general and... You know, he wasn't fighting for slavery. He was fighting for, you know, the for Virginia, for his loyalty to his his sworn loyalty to his state. So it was about honor and keeping his word. And, you know, the slavery is the unfortunate context of the war. But but the Lee thing is different. So, you know, that this this historiography comes down in all kinds of crazy ways, even into my own Yankee family. I mean, think about the role that the myth of the defeated power has played in history, right? I mean, you know, we think of history as written by the winners in some critical way. It's totally written by the losers. Think about the myth of Versailles after World War I and how that established, you know, the, the trajectory of the 20th century. Think about, uh, you know, I, I feel like in my life I've, defe- I've traveled to two profoundly defeated powers. The, the first was visiting in-laws in Alabama, where it's still the war between the states. It's still not referred to as the Civil War. And the second was Moscow in the early 90s, early to mid-90s, you know, after what was really, again, a kind of equivocal defeat that couldn't be fully processed because it was in a Cold War. It was really a defeat at the hand of competing ideologies and not a direct conflict. And yet the psychology of defeat establishes a template from which history proceeds forward. And um, and there is something about how the psychology of defeat in the South became romanticized and then assimilated into a generalized American longing that is it's just with us today. It's utterly with us today. So for me, it, it's definitely been you know, very resonant and I've talked about it a lot, but I'm not sure if, if it has registered that much with the broader public. Um, I was at the I was at the anniversary celebration of Appomattox. Um, in Appomattox over the weekend, and there were you know there were, there were thousands and thousands of people, thousands of reenactors, and that makes me think. And I was at the Gettysburg one too a couple years back, and that makes me think that in fact this is resonating with the public. That thinking about the war um, and and sort of the the events of the war is something that the broad public is interested in. I guess what I'm not sure about is the extent to which. What historians now know, um, and, and the corrective historians have have done over the last couple of decades, I'm not sure if those have really filtered down to the general public either. And I'm not sure if there's been really any broader public reckoning with the, with all the with the unfinished business of the war. For me, as a as someone who actually is much more into Reconstruction as a period than I am into the war itself, the war is interesting and in everything, but Reconstruction to me, it's very fascinating. What stands out in, in reading about the period is how much of that work is unfinished. Uh, how many of those questions, those very basic questions of emancipation, how exactly do we integrate the the freed slaves and their descendants 
what exactly is the role of the national government in securing civil rights? What kind of political participation really makes a democracy? Are questions that are are that are kind of live questions, and I'm not sure that's really understood by the public. I, I have I have a sense that folks look at Reconstruction as this past period that's been resolved when. In very fundamental ways, it it is it has not has never been resolved. No, and I think if you look at the news over the past year or two, you know, around the Voting Rights Act, around um, and the Supreme Court decisions thereon, around you know the relationships between Black citizens and America's various local and state police forces, and that conversation, I think there is a broad conversation in the country right now about the relationship between Black citizens and the state that results from that unfinished business of reconstruction and in a way, the way that this historiographic narrative kind of allowed conveniently various big chunks of powerful people in the country to ignore and stifle that conversation and the, the direct line between it and and now. I'd say that's about right. All right, well, Jamel, thank you so much for coming on the show. As always, a total pleasure. Yep. Thank you for having me. This was a fun conversation and I've been pleasantly surprised how many people all right, game for talking about 150-year-old anniversaries. <laughs> um, all right, the piece is wonderful. It's called The Unlikely Paths of Grant and Lee. The two men met at Appomattox. The loser would become a role model. The victor and embarrassment. It's by Jamel Bowie, political contributor to Slate.com. Jamel, thanks again. Thank you. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana Stevens. What do you got? Actually, Steve, before we endorse, we have one correction from last week. Who fucked up? <laughs> Who do you think? It was me again. I seem to be on a correction binge. But this one, I am not going to grovel too hard for. Apparently, Tokyo Drift is the subtitle of not the second, but the third Fast and Furious yes, movie. Is that right? The, yes. The easy way to remember that is because the second one actually has the memorable title of Too Fast, Too Furious. That's numeral Too Fast, numeral Too Furious. So if you need a handy mnemonic, uh, just don't forget the double twos for number two. And then Tokyo Drift is number three. And now I'm joining Jonah Lehrer in journalistic exile forever because I didn't know that. <laughs> I don't think it's a Lehrer-worthy sin. We should come up with really handy mnemonics for Steve to remember all of them because I know he really just deeply reveres this franchise. <laughs> so Tokyo, it's a five-letter word that starts with T, just like third. I think I think we'll get there. <laughs> I think we'll I got there, so guys. much. Gr- I got so much grief for slagging on this. Movie, totally but... deservedly for walking out. That was lame, brain man. That was a little lame, I have to admit. But um, as I've explained to people a million times before, our podcast is a work of semi-fiction, starring a ridiculous snob, an unconquerable cyborg, and a wood nymph. And <laughs> it's it's the conversation that ensues. I feel like we share our honest critical opinions in this show. And if once in eight years your honest critical opinion was I must leave the theater, that's fair. But it can't happen again until 2023. (laughs) Thus thus spake the cyborg. Okay. Endorsements. Dana. This week I'm going to endorse an audiobook that I listened to, totally unconnected to Audible promotions, but it is on audible.com and other places, I'm sure, too. It was The Letters of Charlotte Bronte, um, the unabridged letters of Charlotte Bronte read by the actress Imogen Stubbs. And uh, this is a really, really great audiobook to listen to if you know something about the Bronte family already. My one proviso here is that if you have never read any of their biographies or sort of any of their books and are completely unfamiliar with the history of the Brontes, there's too many holes in this particular audiobook. There's not any interstitial material that ties it together and tells you, oh, well, Emily died on this date and the publication of Jane Eyre happened here. You sort of have to infer that from the letters. 
Aging rap genius. Exactly. We got to get it up on rap genius. But um, but if you do have that background, this is a really, really wonderful um, collection of letters. I, you wouldn't really think the Brontes would have many letters because they were very isolated people who just sat at Hayworth Parsonage their entire lives and they had very short lives. But Charlotte Bronte lived the longest of, of all of her siblings, very sadly. And one of the things these letters chronicle is her slowly losing her beloved siblings who, you know, they had a very close relationship as, as writers and as people. But then after that, her life continues to be interesting and fascinating. And she continues to publish more books despite being, you know, this lonely, uh, grieving, left behind person. And then eventually marries in a very Jane Eyre-like sort of s- series of events, marries this parson who falls in love with her in the parsonage of Hayworth. And anyway, her story is wonderful. You know, if you've read Jane Eyre, that nobody can sort of speak in the first person like Charlotte Bronte. She really makes you feel like you're there in every description. So start listening to the letters of Charlotte Bronte and you will you will not stop till uh, the two hours and 27 minutes are over. I've never thought about listening to letters as an audiobook. That's sort of interesting. It works really well, actually, because it's first person. I mean, if a good actor like Imogen Stubbs can really inhabit that character, you know, and so it just it's a very, very intimate audiobook. That's so interesting. I love that idea. That is such a great endorsement. What a score. Julia, what do you got? I am reading the much-bruted, much-praised, and yet good. So I'm going to brute it and praise it myself. H is for Hawk. This is a really interesting, oddly constructed, and very compelling memoir by Helen MacDonald. It falls in several categories at once. It's a grief memoir. Uh, Her father dies, you know, on page one of the book. And she's sort of reckoning with what grief feels like throughout the book, uh, which is its own genre. It's also an animal memoir. She's an experienced falconer. She took an interest in this pursuit as a young child. And after her father's death, she takes possession of a goshawk, which is, I learned from the book, I did not know this, a notoriously ornery, sulky, sullen, difficult, uh, and difficult-to-train hawk. And she sort of takes the training of a goshawk as her project during this time of grief. And then as she works on it, she also becomes fascinated with a book written by T.H. White. T.H. White was a British writer who wrote The Once and Future King and was sort of a British nostalgist between the wars, uh, but was also a closeted gay man and a falconer and wrote a book about his own, like, comically, tragically futile attempts to tame his own goshawk in the early 20th century. And she spends a lot of time on the, you know, biography and psychology of T.H. White. She spends a lot of time beautifully describing this bird and what it's like to domesticate and be in the presence of such rapacious wildness. And as a result, she's produced a really unusual and powerful grief memoir. It, it um, I think because it's structured sort of part as literary biography and part as animal observation, it manages to come to new conclusions or make points about grief in new ways. And it's just sentence by sentence an incredibly compelling reading experience. So even if you're not a bird nerd like me, I think you will really enjoy Ages for Hawk by Helen MacDonald. That sounds incredible. And I'm remembering now that I heard that woman interviewed on the radio about the book, and she sounds amazing. She just sounds like a, a, a very unusual person with a strong voice that must come across on the page as well. Yeah, she's very distinctive. And, you know, I mean, even just the structure of it, it's like, well, of course, I'd been falconing for years. So the natural response to grief was to get a goshawk. You know, you're like, okay, like, this is not a universalizable grief book. But, you know, that's the thing about grief. It's always very particular and has many commonalities for different grievers at the same time. And so this is an extremely particular and yet 
in some ways universal book. I've heard great things about it, and I can't wait to read it and and also give it to my daughter. Um, so a couple quick things. The Jamel segment, uh, I feel like I have to mention two things very quickly. One is the Edmund Wilson book, Patriotic War, which is a northerner's slightly perverse version of the lost cause narrative as a way of beating back upon the Cold War state and its crazy argument that's unsustainable, and yet it's beautiful, beautiful book that gets at the psychology of why northerners are attracted to this notion of the South, especially the chapter. I mean, there are many incredible chapters. The one on Lincoln is the best thing I've ever read about Lincoln. The one on Oliver Wendell Holmes is astonishing. It's a tour de force. It ends the book. But the one in which uh, Wilson describes the surrender at Appomattox and Grant's gesture to allow, Lee asks Grant, if I remember correctly, to allow the Southern soldiers to keep their horses for spring planting and Grant allows it. And it's, it's, it's sort of the last great gesture of American chivalry. It was just an incredible piece of writing. And the other is Dana is the, a documentary movie, Sherman's March. Oh, the Ross McElwee movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is opposite, not only of the Jamel segment, but also of the, um, of the while we're young movie. I mean, it's all about turning a documentary film that was supposed to be third person and detached into a kind of personal memoir about how persistent the aura of defeat is through the South, especially following along the path that Sherman took as he torched it uh, along the way to victory. Anyway, but my real endorsement is actually the movie It Follows, which we never had a chance to talk about. (laughs) Oh, I'm excited to see that. I didn't know you were a horror guy, Steve. I was going to suggest we do it, but I thought you'd both be too timorous to go and see it. (laughs) Jana just called us chicken. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I tried with the Babadook. No one was interested. Yeah, H is for timorous with this crowd, but I went because I was dragged by my wife who really wanted to see it she loves this kind of movie she really loved the let the right one in which is a tr- which is a great movie it's much more in the let the right one in vein than nightmare on elm street i mean it sort of superficially has some of the el- elements of the nightmare on elm street franchise which i like but it's way more of a thoughtful odd unexpected film that is way 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 less about sh- sort of shocking the audience with gore or mayhem and much more about the psychology of, of, of what's unfolding in these teenagers' lives. Low budget, really well done. Um, the director is, I think, named David Robert Mitchell. He, he did something I thought really haunting, and uh, thankfully there's going to be a sequel. It's really cool. I, I, I recommend it. It's no doubt coming to a laptop near you um, if it isn't there already. Maybe and, we and should, should do it. it. I will see occasional horror movies, just not ones as a relatively new mother, about how motherhood curdles you and turns you into a violent monster. I'm not ready for the Babadook until the kids go to college. But <laughs> but this one I could handle, I think. This is just about walking around, right? You get chased, but slowly. Spooky house in Detroit, something? I don't want to know too much about it before I see no, it. No, I don't want to give anything away. It's right. good. It's, right. it's well done. We'll put it uh, on the list of potentials. All right. Highly recommended. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. All right, before we go into the credits, I think we'd be completely remiss if we didn't mention that that self-serving climbing snake finally all about Eve Schieffer and is now going to be the host of Face the Nation. That's right, John Dickerson. That No, I don't, I'm just kidding. John Dickerson is the most freakishly likable person I think I've ever met, and it's incredible that he's the host of this show, that someone that decent, that smart, that talented but just so completely uh, decent and likable, just floated right to the top, right, Julia? That's amazing. Oh my God! Of course, John Dickerson is is a is a champion and a king among men, and 
the notion that the process by which television shows pick hosts would reward someone so smart and deserving and delightful is utterly thrilling. And I can't wait to see what he does with the show. And I'm particularly excited because he's going to keep on writing and podcasting here at Slate. So we get all the virtues of John having a marvelous new perch and new ambitious assignment to tackle uh, without any of the sadness of um, having to bid him adieu. Oh, yeah. If he was going off the political gab fest, I don't think I could even be happy about any any height that he was achieving. I would just miss him too much every single week. I also want him at some point when he finds the time to write some sort of life hack self-help book about how we all do as many things at once as John Dickerson seems to be doing while also being a decent human being. I actually was just talking to Slate Plus about that because he has an amazing travel kit. He has like two travel kits. One is all chargies and pluggies that needs to just be photographed and annotated maybe via Genius for Slate Plus. And then the other is his like makeup kit because he's like really a TV guy and has to go on TV at any minute. So he has like a, a bigger makeup kit than I do. And and I like basically need makeup tips from John Dickerson. You know, it's not always easy to look like such a handsome gentleman. How to make yourself up for a TV appearance starring John Dickerson. That's a slate video to make. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm still convinced that beneath the giant scoop of vanilla ice cream is Nikolai Machiavelli, but... No, man. It's no, just, I know. It's, it's just, just not in there. He's just the best guy. It's just talent and decency all the way down. I fucking hate it. All right. <laughs> Congratulations, John. <laughs> Moving on. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll, we'll see you soon. Whoa, killer.